If you're just tuning in, I suggest you go back and start listening from chapter one. Before we start, a content warning. This episode contains graphic accounts of gun violence, as well as domestic and sexual violence, and some cursing. We want our listeners to know that we tried to contact two members of the Carlton family before the season of Panic Button began recording and airing. We genuinely wanted to give them the opportunity to share their memories of Terry and the effect that his death has had on their family. Unfortunately, to date, we have not received a response. I felt like it was just this big mess. And you're right, I've never been abused. And so, at least not physically. I was divorced before I married my late husband. And uh, I felt like I was perhaps emotionally abused at points, but I, I didn't stay in that relationship. So, but I've never been physically abused. And I didn't realize that she had nobody else to go to. I mean, you know, I, I, I did not realize the, I don't know, the, the tipping point of her situation. The whole business that night about skating and then going to a motel was not told clearly. So it wasn't clear to us what happened. So we weren't given any help to do anything else. I mean, if there had been a lesser sentence, I think I'd have voted for it. But there were no other choices. 12 hours. That's all the jury took to consider the evidence and render a life sentence for April. This week, we want to spend some time discussing the aftermath of April's trial and the ripple effect that it had on her family. We had hoped to do the same for the Carltons, but we haven't had a response to our requests for interviews. This is Panic Button, Episode 12, The Aftermath. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. The Court. Please let the record reflect that we are now in the courtroom. The jury has returned after having sent out a note indicating they have reached a verdict. The jury is seated in the jury box. Both counsel for the state are present. The defendant and her counsel are present. I'll note for the record that it is approximately 6.52 on Saturday morning. Ladies and gentlemen, have you selected a four-person? Jury panel nods heads. The court. And Mr. I understand you're the foreman. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And have you reached a verdict? Yes, sir. Would you please hand the verdict form to the bailiff? I'll ask the defendant to rise, please, with your counsel. In the District Court of Tulsa County, State of Oklahoma, Plaintiff versus April Rose Wilkins, Defendant. Verdict. Murder in the first degree. We, the jury, impaneled and sworn in the above entitled cause, do upon our oaths find as follows. The defendant is guilty and fix the punishment at life. It is signed by the foreperson. You may be seated. Does counsel wish to review the verdict form? Mr. Harris, no, Your Honor. Mr. Lyons, I don't, Your Honor. Does counsel wish me to poll the jury? Mr. Harris, no, Your Honor. Mr. Lyons, no, Your Honor. Ladies and gentlemen, you have now completed your duties as jurors in this case, and you are discharged. At this point, I usually tell the jury, thank you, but that seems a little inadequate for this jury. You've been here for three long weeks. You've given above and beyond the call of duty, I think, and I really do thank you. 
and I know counsel shares in that. Before you leave, we need to set a date for sentencing. I will set a date for sentencing on May 27th at 9 o'clock in the morning. The defendant will be here at that time. I'll ask that the officers take the defendant into custody and remove her from the courtroom, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I want the audience to stay until she leaves, please. So that's it. Done. 12 hours to consider a life for a life. And I think you should hear it straight from the juror we spoke to about the deliberation and the delivery of the verdict. Really? I was frustrated because there were only two choices for jury verdicts. We were not offered anything less. It's this or this, and there's nothing over here, which I would have been much inclined to gravitate toward. And so there was, there was no other opportunity. It was first-degree murder or first-degree murder, murder without parole. And so, believe it or not, the majority of our time was spent convincing two jurors that she did not deserve to go to prison for the rest of her life with no possibility of parole. So is it, was it your feeling that she should have been out at some point, that she should have gotten parole then at some point and been released? I have to tell you that some years later, maybe four or five years ago, it sort of rung in my mind again and I looked it up and I was surprised to see she was still in prison. What do you think a term of, if you were given an option for a term of years, like how many years would you think? I suppose like seven to 10. She took human life, even though she was frightened. So she had to pay a price. But it seems to me that that would have been a much fairer sentence for her. And this was overkill because she was as as I tried to explain to these two holdouts on the jury I said you know she is not a danger to people walking down the sidewalk you know this was this was a very special case interestingly enough and this is just this is all my opinion at this point well it's all my opinion but this one particularly is that the two jurors who were holdouts and wanted her to go to prison without parole were probably the two least successful professional people on the jury. And I don't know whether it was because April was was pretty. I mean, she was very toned down in the trial. You know, she was not wearing a lot of makeup or whatever, but she was obviously a, a pretty woman and she was successful. She was a college graduate, had an advanced degree. And I don't know if there was jealousy or or whether the... These two people just thought they were doing their duty if they threw her in prison and never let her out. But I didn't feel like that was fair. And so at least I was happy that we wore them down, took us all night, and we finally wore them down. The the woman who was a holdout went in the bathroom and cried for a while. I mean, everything was new to me since I'd never sat on a jury before. So everything was new. And I have only been called for jury duty one time in my entire life. And to have landed on a first-degree murder, uh, it was just, it was really weird and overwhelming. And I did everything I was supposed to do. I tried really hard. I never watched TV stories, never read the, t- the paper. Um, our jury, when we went out for lunch, did not discuss the case that I ever heard. And so it was a real... 
eye-opening experience when we went back to deliberate to hear which jurors were the ones that were most interested in basically hanging her. Were I there any jurors that believed her? I think we all, I mean, we all sort of believed her, but I don't think we understood how bad it was. I mean, because we didn't have all the history. I think the thing that hung me up anyway was the fact that she went there with such a, a, a terrible history with this man that she went there anyway. Um, she showed us on the stand that she was physically able to do what she said she did, where she had her handcuffed, hands handcuffed and then reached around behind her and, and got the gun. So I, you know, we knew that physically that could have happened, but the rest of the testimony for what went on that night was so muddled. I don't think anybody said she wasn't guilty because she shot him and she said she did. I wish she hadn't shot him eight times. I mean, that, that made her sound like just this cold-blooded killer. Okay, so reactions. So the thing that's the most compelling about April's case is like what we, we said a couple of weeks ago, the traditional self-defense or justifiable homicide piece, which is, you know, within those milliseconds before she fired the gun, was she in reasonable fear of her life? We know she was handcuffed at the time. She had just been raped. She had just been told several times that she was going to be killed. Um, and so to hear from a juror in the case that there wasn't any time spent talking about acquittal, that acquittal was never on the table. Right. And I, like, it also, to me, evidences that like the jury either through the voir dire process didn't really understand what, it, what a justifiable homicide is. Like, because this idea of like, she's, she was guilty because she said, I mean, she shot him and she said she did. That doesn't actually necessarily mean guilt, right? In this situation, when you have a self-defense claim. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that just to me speaks to just, you know, fundamentally not getting it through the evidence, not really understanding the concept of self-defense through the evidence. Yeah. Right? Like you can understand the concept of self-defense out in the world, but like then the evidence ringing true and, and you understanding it through that lens of the specific facts, I don't think happened. No, no. Someone asked me today, like, well, why would the state say that she came down the stairs and opened fire on him while he was playing the guitar if she was handcuffed? How did the handcuffing happen in that scenario? I was thinking about this on the drive here, about how the f there was really no focus of, on the, the fact of the handcuffs. No. Like, Lyons has her do the demonstration for the jury, but that's really the only discussion of it. You know? In Tim's opening, he says... He says, she let him put handcuffs on her. Right. And then that's the only mention of it. And it's like, in the situation where you're positing an entire new theory about the murder, where the handcuffs just don't come into play, no one's even questioning no that. No one was questioning that. And that just to me speaks to like, probably also just like exhaustion by the jury. Like, by the time you get through three weeks, four weeks of this, however many weeks it took, you're just like, okay, I think I get it, guys. Yeah. You know, let's wrap it up and we're going to go discuss. And pretty much everyone in the room, it sounds like, 
had already made up their mind before they even got their charge to go back into the jury room. They had already right. all decided it's not going to be about guilt or innocence. It's going to be about sentencing because we've already decided that she's guilty. The defense just wasn't there. I mean, it was there, but like like you had said a couple of episodes ago about like the cognitive labor of putting the pieces together. Like the jury's not going to do that, right? Like it's too it's too much of a heavy lift. They're there to listen and retain and then discuss and decide. They're not there to solve the puzzle or put the puzzle together. Right. Like they're not going to do that. The the job of the the, the attorneys is to put the puzzle together. So mm-hmm. I think that, that really rings true here. It just it obviously didn't happen. And then I'm curious about those two people that were like, she has to go for life without parole and stayed up all night arguing about that. I mean, for 12 hours, that's a really long time. And it, I don't know if we've said this already, but the jury went out at like seven or 8 PM on a Friday night. And then they just got back at six. They stayed up all night. And that's what they were staying up all night arguing about. Life or life without parole. Leslie, that's crazy. It's it's crazy, but that to me speaks to how seriously they took their jobs, right? Like they, like we can we can think, oh, they probably made up their minds before they went back there. Maybe they did, or maybe at the close of the defense's evidence, they were all like, well, I was waiting to be convinced otherwise, but it really didn't happen. Like, I don't know that you can say that anybody made up their mind after Tim Harris's opening, right? But you can look at the fact that they went back there and they spent 12 hours digging in over whether or not april would ever have the chance to be free again i mean they took that very seriously so if they could have gotten if some of those if if you could get even one or two to be think one or two to be thinking about self-defense could this have been different could it have been a hung jury maybe i mean if those two people were willing to dig in all night long and one of the women who was fighting for life without parole went to the bathroom and was crying after they came to their decision about deciding it would be life. Like, very emotionally invested, very upset that she didn't get her way. Well, I figured out whose names they were. You did? Yeah. We'll talk offline. We'll talk offline. <laughs> Drop it in the in the, in the, in the signal chat. <laughs> not, not in the group chat. What are your, I mean, what are your summative thoughts on this juror perspective and, like, you know, her even saying, I wish I could have given her seven to 10 years, or I'm surprised to find that she's still in jail. In yeah, prison. it shows me a lot about what jurors believe happens after someone's sentenced versus the reality, which is, especially in Oklahoma, no one gets parole, on a, especially not on a violent crime. The pr- procedure to even get parole on a violent crime is two-tiered, plus it has to go to the governor, extremely difficult politically fraught. The thought that there is a substantive difference between life and life without parole in Oklahoma shows me that people just really don't know, that there really isn't a difference between those two things. I mean, when you're walking around with a murder conviction outside of prison, like that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, it's like under one some in set of circumstances, but it's really, really difficult. And I don't want to say it never happens. I've seen it happen. So it's not that it never happens. But as far as like from a statistical standpoint, one Super out of rare. one out of 100 people convicted of murder, maybe not even like everyone the board sees. Yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. I think it would be tough for me as a juror to hear that because it's like I spent all this time arguing over something that de facto doesn't do anything. 
Yeah, that'd be a tough reality to kind of swallow. And like this, this I, the, what was really, I think, striking to me about what she had to say is this idea of the seven to 10 years and how she felt like they were so boxed in. This or that, and you can't look over here. You know, seven to 10 years would have been a, a, a reasonable sentence in her mind. Yeah, she was basically saying, I find her factually guilty. I find there to be culpability attached, criminal liability attached to her action. But I don't feel that the sentencing choices were just. Yeah. And that's pretty striking to hear because on my side of the fence where I'm fighting for sentencing reform in our state every day, and we're saying sentences are excessive as compared to the conduct, and no one believes that. It's like, no, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like this, but it's not like this in any other states. To hear someone who's on the side of like being in a jury room and saying, after hearing this case, I don't believe that those sentences were just in the face of these facts is like, well, I mean, I just think we need to give people more nuance in a situation, especially in criminal law situations that are so nuanced anyway. I agree. Several people also have asked, you know, has April appealed? Is she exhausted all of her appeals? And the answer to that question is mostly yes. She had some ineffective assistance of counsel claims from the trial. And then she also had ineffective assistance at the appellate level on the first appeal. A lot of issues were missed by that first appeal. And then because if you don't wait, if you don't raise something on an appeal, it's very difficult to raise it on a subsequent appeal because essentially you're saying you had the court looks at it like you had the opportunity to let us know about this. We've already done all this work to read your transcripts and gone through this whole case and you missed these issues. That's kind of on you. And so it's it's it becomes more and more difficult the more layers you get up into the appellate process to raise issues that you didn't raise um, earlier on. And so even though she had ineffective assistance of counsel at trial level and ineffective assistance of counsel at the appellate level the first round, then she takes it and does it herself because she she can't afford another appellate counsel. So she actually uh, writes her own appeal to the to the federal court. For me, though, the other thing about the appellate process, so like we've kind of talked about this, but you get the direct appeal directly from the verdict up through the court of crims and then... Um, onward but then if you win or lose on direct appeal i mean if you lose on direct appeal then really you're looking at what's called post-conviction relief right the pcr applications um and that's like the idea of a post-conviction application is like a collateral attack it has nothing to do with necessarily like um factual innocence more to do with procedural problems and procedural problems can include these issues of evidence not coming in right but um, it's you know it's like it's better just to win a trial. <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to be uh, you don't want to lose the presumption of innocence and then be facing having to overturn a jury verdict because jury verdicts are given um, a lot of weight. It's very hard to overcome a jury verdict. Mm-hmm. They're considered the the finder of fact. One of the things that a, that an appellate court does is they have an extreme level of what we call deference to the fact finder. So. They're not going to delve into the facts, the reliability of the witnesses, if they were trustworthy, things like that. They don't feel that they could ever be as good of a judge of those things than the the jury was because they were in the room 
watching the person reacting, listening to the person speaking, and that there's no better substitute for finding facts than that. And so those verdicts that come from a jury are very, very difficult to overcome. Um, the system is very invested in the idea that the system is fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the system wants the system to believe the system is fair. And then wants you guys as part of the system, as the j- potential jurors to believe that the system is fair. Right. But I do, like, I just want to make, I do want to note just something about the legal profession, right? That I think, I don't know if it's particular to Tulsa or to Oklahoma or if this, if it's like this other places. So if you're, an, if you're an attorney from like another city, I'd love to hear what you have to say about like the local bar where you, where you work bar being the professional organization, not the bar where you get your drinks. <laughs> but um, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, where April's direct and two PCR applications went. At the time, there was a judge, Charles Johnson, on, on that tribunal. And he initially recused from April's direct appeal, partly because, well, as far as I know, because entirely because of his relationship to Don Carlton, who he had officiated Don's third wedding. And we'll drop that document in the show notes where you can see that he was the officiant for their wedding. So he recused on the direct appeal, but then he did not recuse on the two PCR applications. I don't know why, you know, I mean, we don't have any statements or documents or anything showing what his reasoning was for not recusing, but it's like powerful people all know each other in this town, right? Is there an X on my back? I don't know. We don't know. Maybe. Somebody coming after me later? Somebody's probably lying in wait after this podcast for me. But maybe they don't give a shit, too. Maybe well, I, th- also, maybe I, I think, think they're too busy. much. <laughs> no, but I'm not, like, I'm not even trying to raise the specter of impropriety, necessarily. I'm just trying to highlight that, like, it's almost impossible. Even in smaller towns than Tulsa, it's like, oh, your cousin's with the DA? Sorry, I'm the only fucking judge. I can't recuse from every case. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, it's this profession is so uh, it's such a tight circle you know yeah and we depend a lot on the idea that people can separate personal relationships and um, personal affiliations from the work that they do and i think sometimes people can but not always and yeah it's just like if this is what we're seeing in a town of almost half a million half a million yeah what what is happening in the fifty thousand people towns? The ten thousand people towns, like right, like these are like, it's it's hard. It's hard to like wrap your mind around it. And you know, again, I I like to. I also take like a bit of a naive Pollyanna view of the system. Like, there's a lot of fucking problems with it, but it still beats having to bash somebody's head in with a rock when you get upset over a debt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't, like I don't know what the system looks like. Otherwise, I don't have the imagination for it. <laughs> well, depends on whose side of the rock you're on. But <laughs> that's fair. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but the other, like, so the other, like, funny little tidbit about this case is that by the time April gets to federal court, the federal judge at the time in the Northern District who caught the case was a judge, Thomas Brett, who's a close relative of none other than Rebecca Brett Nightingale. You know, the, the, the uh, assistant district attorney who helped prosecute now of course um, april asked him to recuse and he did but it's just like bam 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 you can't you can't get away from these like powerful people who have these relationships with one another it's like it's hard yeah i mean when you start looking at the names 
af- affiliated with this case, it be- it ends up becoming like this star-studded legal drama yeah. for our town and our area because it's like there's not that many lawyers and then most lawyers come from families of lawyers. Yeah. And there's not that many people that have a lot of money and so all of those people are friends with each other. Yeah. And you end up getting caught in these sort of circles of people that... Again, I'm not, like, saying that anybody's done anything improper. No. But I am saying that, like, it's pretty hard to separate these relationships when you're in these decision-making positions. I feel like it's so common here that we maybe don't necessarily think as deeply about it as we should as a community. You know? Like, the people who are in these positions to make decisions that impact people's lives... And the relationships they all have to one another and the behaviors when somebody steps out of line or behaves inappropriately or improperly. What does it look like to hold your friend accountable or your friend's kid accountable? It's hard. Uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And should we be like just thinking more deeply about that as a community? Well, and I think too, like a lot of times people in power that I know of or have talked to feel like it's a personal affront to them to suggest that they could not not be impartial it's human and that they take it as an insult like i can do my job you know even though i might have these personal relationships or personal things and it's like i just think we should take it as a default that it's not a personal attack on you or personal affront on you to avoid the appearance of impropriety which we always say we want to do the default should be if you know anyone in the case or you're related to anyone in the case, you should recuse. Yeah. Not because not because anybody thinks that you're going to that you're going to do anything improper necessarily, but to avoid the specter of it, to avoid it being this thing that hovers over your decision making. You don't want that. No. I don't know. I think our system is a lot more fragile than what we would like to think. Sure. And every time there's a chink in the armor of its credibility, like a murder conviction of an innocent person that shouldn't be in prison getting upheld for some procedural bar or things like, it's taken too long for you to bring me this exculpatory evidence, so I think you should have to stay in prison. Things like that make the general public think, what is the point of this? If the point of it isn't to bring truth to light and to serve justice, as we say, if the point of it is just to uphold some ridiculous procedure, then people start to lose faith in the honesty. Dude, that's how you get Nazis, bro. Not to not to go full blown whatever, you know, internet argument, but like (laughs) you know procedure for procedure's sake creates little robots who can't think deeply about what their society should be doing. Or the impact that their decisions have on real people's lives. Anyway, we can't cover the appeals in detail. Otherwise, this podcast will be 30 episodes long. And so just a high-level look that April lost on appeal with a lot of incompetent appellate help. The case obviously also impacted April's son, Hunter. And he has spent a lot of time and effort to deal with the trauma of this whole situation. And even now, I mean, here's how he describes thinking about Terry and how Terry treated his mom. And I remember he bought me a guitar, he bought me any toy I wanted, he just would just buy you stuff, you know. But over time, because I have, I have extremely faint, faint memories 
of this. But it was almost as if he was buying us stuff and giving us things to cover up for the... Can I curse in this? Is this okay to curse? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. He was like buying us stuff to, to cover up for the fucked up shit he was doing behind closed doors that nobody knew about except for my mom. And that's kind of what it felt like. And I didn't know that as a kid, but now when I look back at the memories that I have, it's more and more clear to me. I guess where I'm going is the, the main feeling I got from Terry was, I guess it's the, the, the tone of voice I heard when they were fighting, which still gives me chills to this fucking day, is unchecked anger. And it, you can tell that it's, it's dark anger. It's not, it's not like righteous anger. It's not anger, anger. It, there's something sick about it. That's what really gives me chills to this day. God, if this would have happened now, I think this would be a completely different story. <laughs> I can see why the fuck she thought she was going to get out. Really? Like, if you fucking had that much evidence, I mean, you called the police on someone, you had a restraining order against somebody, and you think, you would think that you would be getting out. But that's just absolutely not what happened. None of the evidence she thought was going to make it there made it there. I love hearing from Hunter, but it's also such a reminder that this story didn't happen in a vacuum. There's human collateral damage that occurred, and he is at the forefront of it. And I think even he is having, he is still realizing and living through the consequences of his mom being gone. I think that's a really good segue into like the other thing that Hunter had to say to us, which we can play here in a second. But like, you know, he talks about the trauma of learning about it as a child, but then, you know, his spending his youth, like pretending it didn't happen and then kind of like coming to terms with that he had to deal with it. And I think, you know, he kind of goes through this whole cycle, which we can hear, we can hear about in a second. I don't know if you have any other comments before we jump into that. Yeah, I think, of course, all of this has been extremely difficult for Hunter. He was only eight when his mom was sentenced to life in prison for shooting Terry. Today, he's a young man in his early 30s with his own young child. When we spoke to Hunter about this case, he expressed the complexity of the trauma and the entire incident has had on his life and how his reaction to it has changed over time. Here's Hunter again. My dad literally grabs a newspaper I'm sitting at the dinner table. Grabs a newspaper, slaps it down in front of my face. Like, what is this? He's like, well, I want you to find out the way everyone else finds out. I want you to know the exact same information that everyone knows. So you're not blindsided by anything. So I had to read the front page of the newspaper um, with this on it. So that's how I found out is my father dropped the newspaper onto the uh, the kitchen table 
a little traumatizing. I mean, <laughs> a, little, a, little, a little messed up. Wasn't really expecting that. I think shortly after that is when uh, she called the first time from, I think at first it was jail. And she was like, come see me, come see me. And then when I think we went and saw her. And <clears throat> she told me that everything was going to be fine and that she was going to get out in a week, two weeks, something like that. So I would go back two weeks thing she's like all right uh, i'm gonna be out in a week two weeks and i don't know if this happened two or three times but i don't know she really believed that she was gonna get out in like a month so i think after i don't i don't remember how many times we went up there my dad was just like, no, like, I can't let you keep fucking telling him that. And I can't, you know, this is looking like that's not actually going to happen. So we can't keep going up there. So we stopped. We stopped going up there. Um, she kept calling and I kept talking to her. And she was very confident that, that she was going to get out. Um, I, 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 I tried to forget any of this ever happened since from like when I was age 18 to 25, 26. I just, just pretended it didn't happen. Uh, it was easier that way. Um, but, you know, I got older, I started, had a kid, and I realized that it's going to be really super complicated to explain to my child what's going on with her grandmother. So I figured I was going to have to deal with this. So I started dealing with it. And that's kind of how we got to this spot right now today. It took me a long time to understand, you know, what she did and why she did it. But, like, now I do. And now it's, I'm, like, I'm extremely mad at, I don't know. Like, it, it just, it hurts it hurts like every single day. So, I mean, and that took me a long time to understand because for a long, long, long time, I did not, I did not forgive her for, you know, leaving me, I guess, which, I mean, it's, it's really not her choice, but for a long time, I was mad at her for making decisions that, made it to where you know she left me okay well that was heartbreaking it's oh i hate it so much because you can just hear in hunter's voice even after everything he's been through he's still a good person he might have a lot of anger but he's done his best for his kid and his life to just try to process this and it's unprocessable I know. And it's like his anger certainly comes from a righteous place. Unlike, you know, some others amongst us, but like he's angry for a good reason. 
what happened to his mom simply wasn't fair. It's not justice. She missed out. He was seven or eight. I mean, he was he was a child. And everything he's told us leads me to believe that she was like a great mom. I know. For all the like drug abuse and all of that that was going on, like he doesn't remember that. That's not what stands out in his mind. Like a meth addicted mom isn't the thing he remembers. He remembers a mom who loved him and cared for him and he didn't understand why he couldn't see her. He had no, like, looking back, he, like, has been able to piece together what was going on as an adult. But as a child, all he remembers is, like, I want to be at my mom's house. He got a bat cave. He had to eat... (laughs) Had um, to eat vegan. (laughs) Vegan food. He had to eat tofu sometimes. But that overall, it was so fun to be with her. And he couldn't understand why his dad wasn't taking him there anymore. I mean, I think... A lot of times in cases like this that we see where the kids are still in the house, the woman is subjected to even harsher judgment and liability because she didn't do what she, quote, needed to do to get her kids to safety. Failure to protect, man. Yeah. But here, April did do that. She sacrificed her time with him. She sacrificed um, her own credibility in family law court to get him to a safe place. I forgot about that whole trope. Yep. And so in order to keep him safe, she sends him away. And then the fact that she sent him away to keep him safe is used against her because she's not a good mom anymore. But if she had kept him with her, she would have been a bad mom because he would have been in a failure to protect situation possibly. Right. So there's no winning. It's... It makes me sick to my stomach. It's like hard now as a mom, like a new mom, fairly newish mom. And like just uh, this shit, I don't know. It just makes me sick to my stomach. She missed out on his entire growing up, you know? I I wished that we had, I also just kind of, I do wish that we had heard back from the Carltons and we, I don't know. I do wish that like they wanted to provide some insight into like what this loss meant to them. I want to hear that. I do want to hear that. Because, like, I mean, Terry Carlson was a human being, right? I don't know. His 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 death affected that family in some way. But we're not going to, I mean, we don't, they don't want to share that with us at this point. I mean, I think from most victims I've talked to are very angry and feel that especially in this situation, I agree with them that this was preventable. Um, And so it feels extra unjust, especially when you know there was many, many layers that could have been intervened to prevent this from happening. Um, And I think that they would say to you, like, I don't owe you my feelings or... Yeah, that's fair. You don't. How this affected me. You know, like it's fucked up that it even happened in the first place and they probably feel like it wasn't fair. Well, and but for me, it's like there's this other aspect of it. Like when you say this shouldn't have happened or didn't need to happen, could have gone different ways. It's like we haven't talked about this hardly at all. But how do we stop domestic violence? Well, we, we stop the people who perpetrate it. I mean, we have to find a therapeutic and yeah um effective treatment for people who use violence as a reaction 
either to their feelings or to their external stimuli. And because we are so committed to incarceration being the only way to treat this, um, on what we would consider, quote unquote, lower level violence, like domestic violence usually is treated, there just isn't a response to that that is effective because either you put the person in prison for years and years, destroy the community, and domestic violence is so prevalent that that will never happen because that would be putting so many people in prison. It's unsustainable to our society. Right. And so we've just basically said as a society that we're not really going to do anything about this until it becomes so serious that someone's dead or maimed. Yeah. That just opens up so many philosophical questions about, like, what is justice anyway in the first place? Restorative justice, man. There are a lot of programs in New York City and other more progressive places where they use restorative justice circles, like, that come from tribal communities in domestic violence situations. And they're actually proven to be pretty effective. But you have to divorce yourself from the idea that every single crime has to be punished to the full extent of the law and incarceration is the only answer. But like to me, if we just invested even a little bit in it, like I did a sort of justice project through a fellowship in law school. It was not a huge success because I didn't have the right buy-in with the entity that I was trying to do it through. But if you had the right fucking buy-in and you made the community investment in restorative justice, like let's just take domestic violence just in domestic violence, if you could find a way to take these principles of like, not righting a wrong, but like healing a harm, right? Like an underlying principle of this is not like punitive Mm -hmm. in nature. It's about the harm that these things do, not just to the person, not just to the person that they're perpetrated upon, but like to the Terry's of the world. Like your violent acts are harming you. They're you're spiraling out and you're suicidal and you need someone to come in and patch up these harms. Mm-hmm. And like none of that was available for him in the 90s. It's not available today. Like really. the, it seems like the only thing anybody knew to do was to try to get him into drug and alcohol treatment. And as much as some violence in our community is driven by people who are who have substance use disorder, Going to drug and alcohol treatment is not a cure-all for somebody who uses violence as a response to external or internal stimuli. Like, there has to be an element of this where people will be allowed to be innovative and try new things and study this. And because these systems are completely dominated by the attorney generals and the district attorneys who want to get convictions... It's almost like how we can't research marijuana because it's illegal. Or gun violence. We can't research gun violence because it's against the law. We can't research violence itself because it's like we're so committed to punishing all violence with things that don't work. We're not invested in like the root of the violence whatsoever. I mean, we never have been. That should be, and they the retort to that, and I can hear it in my head, is that that is something that needs to happen in the home, in the family. Sure. And the, that it's parents' responsibility to teach their children not to be violent. And it's like, okay, that's and fine, but there are going to be parents that don't teach their children or there are going to be people who are resistant to learning that message. It's also just like a bullshit that is like such a bullshit lack of like 
abdicating abdicating your responsibility to society like it's just it's it's the family's fault well okay how many thousands of things could be going wrong in the home that would like it's like that quote from john adams (laughs) whatever i'm gonna butcher it but it's like I got to study violence and war so my kids can study math and literature so their children can study the poetry and art. You oh, know what yeah. I mean? Like it's it's generational shit that's left unresolved. So I don't know. We could pontificate about this all night. But yeah. Of course. And then there's Amanda, April's niece. She spent most of her life not really knowing about April's situation. Her family didn't really talk about it. But here's how she learned about her aunt April and why she decided to start the free April Wilkins blog. Like during the case, my mom, you know, was absent to attend the trial, so they they had to tell me something, and so I did know she had shot and killed someone. And I think later I learned who it was, and that I had met him, Terry Carlton, like at Christmas one point. At one point, you know, growing up there was like this vibe that you know she had done something wrong, but she was overpunished. I was encouraged to be a pen pal with her, and so I I enjoyed writing letters to her I still write letters to my friends and send her Christmas cards and she would write back and she really came across as like a full well-rounded person who was interested in my life and cared about me so I I created a a blog a WordPress blog to really upload a single file and it, it turned from one file into a bunch of files out of that grew the timeline and and like it started off as just Facebook, but like the Instagram and blogging more came from Ashlyn. Um, Ashlyn Faulkner is my friend. I've known her since the second grade. And she's basically why April was able to get an attorney for this latest parole attempt, like through her networking. And then also t- she's the reason why I think you all know about April's story. So it it wasn't just me. But Ashlyn was, like, just brainstorming with her um, because it's like, I don't know where to turn um, or what to do in terms of, like, getting the story out there. Like, no one would really listen. (laughs) One thing that I want the the world to know about April's case is that even if you can, by some chance, look past all of the unfairness and the injustices, if you look at her attempts for commutation and parole, that has broken my heart the most in the fact that she there's nothing she can do to seemingly attain parole. The jury sentenced her to life with the possibility of parole. They didn't want her to sit there and rot for the rest of her life. And the fact that she can't seem to, to make parole is just so heartbreaking. The system is broken, that I, and I don't know what else to do at this point. So when she lost her last parole attempt, We had never had that much hope before because the parole board, you know, she had several yes votes from certain parole board members in the past. And then it had gotten new board members and previous yes votes had resigned last minute, right as she was coming up for for their vote. And um, she didn't even get a hearing this time when she has in the past. And, And that, I just remember crying on the phone with her. So... That, that really broke my heart, all of that hard work. Um, I remember crying with Ashlyn on the phone, too, and, and like, she's like, what? And that's all we could really say is, like, what? How can they do this? How dare they? <laughs> and, it's, and it's just, 
reaction, but it it was a lot of crying that day. So, but April's case didn't just affect her family or the Carlton family. This case also impacted other folks, like attorney Lynn Worley, the attorney who worked to get Linda Driscoll in to offer counseling to April before the trial and who begged to aid in April's defense. In 2009, Lynn Worley wrote um, a letter to the Pardon and Parole Board advocating for April's release. And I think it's worth reading it to you guys here on the podcast so that you can hear what she had to say. Dear Mr. Jenks, I met April Wilkins in October of 1998 at the Tulsa County Jail, six months after she was charged with the murder of her boyfriend, Terry Carlton. I agreed to assist a domestic violence intervention counselor, Linda Driscoll, in getting her in to see April on a regular basis. I had ample experience with clients of domestic abuse, and my experience caused me to prejudge April's guilt and or culpability in Terry Carlton's death. I had cases where women either lied about their abuse in order to obtain advantage in custody cases or who were abused but then recanted their allegations and dismissed their actions to reconcile with their abusers. In spite of my bias, by the end of our third session in November, my mind and opinion had been changed and I was beseeching her then attorney to let me assist him in her defense. During the numerous two hour long sessions in the six months prior to her trial, April talked and I took notes. She described a whirlwind romance which was seasoned with lots of money, illegal drugs, international trips, and control. This lethal concoction led to a pattern of violence and reconciliation, which was documented and or witnessed by others only some of the time. There was also an alarming pattern of law enforcement malfeasance and or inaction in response to incidents she did did report no doubt the result of Mr. Carlton's family's power and position in the community. She was shockingly candid about her own misdeeds in this relationship with Mr. Carlton. I personally checked out what could be and was shocked to see the accuracy and veracity of her claims. She was incredibly consistent in the details of everything she told me. I began understanding how victims of domestic violence think, why they reconcile and forgive batterers, why they do not fear when you or I would, why they rationalize away violent behavior and accept it as one of the terms of their relationships. I knew that if she was given the opportunity to explain the relationship and circumstances to the jury like she did to me, that they would understand her actions and thoughts at the time of the murder were reasonable in her mind. By the the end of the sessions, I knew April very well and was extremely concerned about how she would appear to the jury. She has a laugh and smile which is present when she is nervous. I noticed it took weeks of sessions with me before she no longer did that. I also was concerned that she would have questions, get emotional, and quite possibly just need someone to sit with her and manage her situation at the defense table. I offered to do that, but my offer was declined, and I was a spectator at her three-week-long trial. I sat and watched as her attorney and his assistant sat with their chairs turned so that their backs were facing her and they would not talk to her and ignored her questions during the trial. This speaks volumes to a jury. I listened as she was allowed to take the stand with little to no preparation and watched the effect that nervous laugh and smile had on those jurors. More importantly, there was no expert testimony about battered woman syndrome. Therefore, there was no education or explanation to the jurors regarding what she did was reasonable in her mind at the time. 
Finally, there was no option posed to the jurors to convict her of the lesser-included offense of manslaughter, failure of which has resulted in the reversal of at least one similar case in Oklahoma since April's conviction. I told my husband the day before the case was submitted to the jury that the jury would have no choice but to convict based on what they saw and heard. This was confirmed at 8.30 a.m. on Saturday morning, April 24th, when she was convicted of first-degree murder. My reasoning for the verdict was confirmed by interviews I had with several of the jurors after the conviction. I know the issue is not whether she was wrongfully convicted, but I think you need to know that this case is the poster child for how Oklahoma's legal system fails abused women and abusers alike. Politics, money, and greed runs roughshod over the true intentions and letter of the law. Prior to this trial, I had considered working for the DA's office until I sat through a week of jury selection and heard Tim Harris's opening statement. From that moment on, I knew I would rather be a greeter at Walmart for the rest of my days than work for someone who cannot assess and do the right thing in the light of the circumstances. He knew that the law enforcement system failed to protect April and punish Terry Carlton at numerous junctures throughout the relationship, and that like a spoiled and undisciplined child, he knew he could do what he wanted with no repercussions. Rather than offer a reasonable plea bargain, he sucked up and pandered to the Carlton family for political gain. If Terry Carlton had been a regular Joe from a regular family who had worked a minimum wage job, based on these facts, history, and forensic evidence, I honestly believe she would not have even been charged. Further, it begs the question if he was a, quote, regular citizen, would the murder ever have happened at all? A regular Joe would have been incarcerated long before April 1997 for the abuse he inflicted upon her and the violations of court orders that were committed repeatedly. April's case has changed my life. Her conviction spun me into an early midlife crisis. I no longer wanted to live in Oklahoma. I couldn't believe that this is how our legal system works. I decided to move out of Oklahoma and back east where my family lives. To that end, I obtained an emergency application to take the Vermont State Bar exam and took the exam later that July. Had it not been for a personal emergency in my life, we would have moved that fall. That is how much this case affected me. In 2001, I went on to assist an appeal attorney in the federal writ of habeas corpus in April's case. I traveled to Mabel Bassett in McLeod twice during this process. I met with then-federal Judge Claire Egan to obtain an affidavit regarding how she was April's attorney prior to taking the bench and assisted in her obtaining a protective order after Terry Carlton had viciously assaulted her in Rome. She had her file and a tape recording between April and Terry wherein he admitted the assault and explained why he would choke her and why he would sometimes want to kill her. Ms. Egan, her file, and that tape were known to April's trial attorney, yet she was never called upon. I have contemplated writing a book about this case many a time. It would read like a John Grisham novel, as it would demonstrate that the power and influence money can buy is yet another sad chapter in Oklahoma's legal history. Finally, April's case has changed how I deal with my clients. Not having ever been abused, through April, I now have a much better understanding of the whys involved in the cycle of abuse. I screen for abuse in my clients and require counseling during the legal process if there is a history of the same. April Wilkins was an intelligent woman who had a successful career and was a phenomenal mother, and she allowed herself to engage and stay in a toxic relationship with Terry Carlton. Her successful business evaporated, she lost custody of her son, and she became an illegal drug user, lost her self-respect, identity, and freedom, and he lost his life. 
She is still an incredibly intelligent woman, as evidenced by her own legal representation while in prison. In prison, she has found her identity and self-respect again. While she has never denied her role in what happened, she understands how she got there. I would highly encourage her to become a counselor for battered women. She can instruct and teach from position of having truly been there, which is the most powerful position someone can counsel another from. She is someone I would employ, trust with my kids, and continue to be a friend to. She has more than paid for her culpability in what happened. If she were released, I know that she would be a productive and meaningful member of society. Please feel free to contact me if you have any questions. Lynn Worley. That letter was badass, bro. Oh my god. She called them all out. She just doesn't even spare like a single second for anybody's BS. I know. Lynn. Lynn, peace to you. Love to you. Thank you for writing that letter. Exactly. She said, I was going to be a DA until I heard Tim Harris's opening Until Tim Harris made me sick to my stomach. (laughs) Stomach it. Same girl. What are your final thoughts? I have to do a shameless plug for my organization, Oklahoma Appleseed. Um, We run on donations. Uh, any, Any amount is substantial to us. We are just getting off the ground. You can donate at okappleseed.org. And I hope that you will. We would like to continue bringing you this kind of content and this kind of truth telling, but we can't do it for free. And so we really appreciate any kind of financial support that you can give. Yeah. And I guess I just want to say thanks for listening. Um, Colleen and I care very deeply about this case, but also this issue. And honestly, just making the justice system work better for everyone out there who gets caught up in it. And for the people that don't, we all deserve a fair system. We do. And we this, do. the system exists not just for the people who get caught, but for the people who don't. Yeah. Um, and the idea of it being fair is essential to our republic. <laughs> Truly. It's foundational. <laughs> um, Thank you guys for listening. And um, here's April one last time. I feel like this is the bigger story. I mean, I, I feel like the biggest story, the most impactful story is people coming together and actually doing something and caring. That's amazing to me. You know, I've been locked up, um, I'm in my 25th year, and so I've seen a lot of cold years where you get in here and you just feel really, really forgotten. And like you don't, I'm a woman of faith, so I know, you know, I know, I know God is there, and I know, but um, to see community move, and see other women move to is it's inspiring to me. Like that keeps giving me hope. Cause I'm not the only woman in here under these circumstances. I know I'm surrounded by a lot of women who've been through injustices. So you take women and they're already traumatized and you put them in here together and it's just, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of suffering and there's a lot of pain and um, yeah. It's easy to feel forgotten. So to see people on the outside coming together for us, oh my gosh, yeah. My little granddaughter, um, I called her on Sunday night, and she's just getting to where she can really talk, you know, like really talk well. And she says, Grammy, are you in prison? (laughs) Yes, I'm in prison. And then she said, are you okay there? Are you happy? (laughs) I know. I know, and I thought, okay, wait a minute. I can't tell her, no. Yeah, okay, don't worry about me. But to have that, and so all I think about is, like, you want this world to be a better place for the, um, you know, for 
the barely four, you know, um, you you want this world, so what can what can we do that she doesn't ever have to go through this? So this is technically the last episode of season one of Panic Button, the April Wilkins case. Of course, the podcast will live on on your podcast playing apps and you can come back to it anytime. It's possible that there will be updates in April's case, like um, if she comes up for parole again or if she applies for a sentence commutation. And in the event that she does get released, we will hopefully be able to hear some of her reaction to that from outside the walls of Mabel Bassett, and we'll do our best to bring that to you. So stay subscribed and stay engaged. And if you do want to get involved in any legislative efforts that we're doing, you can sign up at freeaprilwilkins.com to help get updates on things that we will be doing to try to pass legislation to bring April and others like her home sooner. Panic Button is a co-production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Leslie Briggs. We're your hosts, Colleen McCarty and Leslie Briggs. Our theme music is Velvet Rope by Guillaume. The production team is Leslie Briggs and Rusty Rowe. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studio in Tulsa. Special thanks to Lynn Worley, Amanda Ross, and Ashlyn Faulkner for their work on this case. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, use a safe computer and contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing review. Follow us at okay underscore appetite across all social you can subscribe right now on the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo 